Hello, I'm David Hepworth. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear, the latest of hundreds of chats Mark Allen and I have had over recent years, some between ourselves and others with musicians, authors, comedians, and other people we like. If you'd like to help make sure they continue, you might consider becoming a Patreon supporter by visiting patreon.com slash wordinyourear or just by liking or subscribing in whatever way you prefer. On with the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Shall we go? Are we recording? Do whatever you want to do, mate. Right, right. You know that. Go anywhere. Now, people who've been to Word in Your Ear in the the past uh, may notice a few changes this evening. For a start, Mark Allen can't be with us because he's he's lost his voice. He's got the flu, so he's not here. He just hates to be upstaged. (laughs) He hates it. He's not. He knows an alpha when he meets one. And Alex Gold is normally at the, at the, uh, on the door there. He's on tour in Germany, so he can't be here this evening. And when I arrived here myself, uh, Terry, as the landlord here, said, looked at me and said, well, why are you bothering to come at all? <laughs> because he was aware who our guest is oh, this no, evening. No, 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 it's not, I don't <laughs> not for a second. But it's delightful to have him here. Uh, please welcome Danny Baker. Hooray! All my children. Thank you very much indeed. Now, in honour, Danny, as I, as I think I warned you about this over the weekend, uh, in, in your honour, we're going to attempt to do a slightly different thing this evening. Go on. Um, <laughs> rather than following the usual highly disciplined, linear approach to interviewing people about their books. Uh, I thought we'd, t- we'd take a leaf out of your book. What you do on the radio is very often... I've been on your radio programme where you say, pick a number between 1 oh, and yeah, they, 20. It's called a blindfold jukebox. Blindfold it's jukebox. It's a great concept that, uh, um, were I any you know, more motivated, uh, I, I, would have, I would have got behind. But why BBC4 doesn't do it, it's where, uh, uh, you may have heard it, uh, I'll select... Uh, 20, 20 tracks usually from someone's career, a musician's career, and they won't be uh, the norm. They won't be... Um, the, the Some will be, because to talk about the hits, but it will never put the pressure on. And musicians really love it when it looks like it's their fault if they pick a bad record they've made, because you say... <laughs> and that was the point. So you say, number, they'll say number 11. And so number 11 comes on and it's some B-side, and they'll go... <sighs> 
I mean, uh, um, Todd Rundgren he was here and he's like, oh man, he's got the, the album with Sparks he made up. He put on, he went, oh, oh, oh. And, and all, all of a sudden, them dominoes are falling. I mean, this was, do you know what this is? I said, well, I made the CD, Todd. Yes, I do. And, and they start, but it takes the pressure off uh, uh, saying, oh, let's trawl through the career. And the Blindfold Jewbox works for me. I told you what it didn't work with. We'll get going in a minute, David. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Terry's theory is born no, out no. of. <laughs> Steve Miller, Steve Miller, who's a notoriously difficult interview, and he was very suspicious of it. Before we, this is at BBC London, and he came in, and he was like on the treadmill doing a thing. Comes in local radio, and he said, uh, um, he said, uh, 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 oh, I said, what about you? Pick the tracks, and he was a bit suspicious of it. I said, well, you know what? Otherwise, you come in. I know what it's like. With all respect, I said, people come in, they play the Joker, and you know, off you go, and you think, well, I know what this interview is going to be like and I said so I'm aware of your work before that and uh, and Steve Miller by the way his babysitter you know Steve Miller's baby his actual babysitter was when he was growing up this all came out in the thing uh, 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 Les Paul Les Paul used to live opposite him because he was from a wealthy family and Les Paul made him his first guitar and I said have you still got it he went oh yeah he's got the first shilling he ever earned uh, Steve Miller uh, and he oh yes I'm sorry no he really is he's, but in a great way so many of these you know uh, drug addled he was never like that and so he said okay okay so I pick a track and uh, he said okay it's kind of intriguing I said but it stops all the obvious I said so here we go Steve Miller blah blah pick a number he went okay number nine I went oh and I put it on he went some people call me the space cowboy <laughs> And he went, oh, I said, you chose it. And he opened up about it and he gave a great, you know, yeah, yeah. which I don't think he'd have done if I'd have said, Steve, you know, that great hit you had, the Joker, he'd have rolled his eyes. But he, and he started talking about the, the legacy and the albatross that, that that has become to him. And so, yes, to answer your question, it's a little thing I do on the radio sometimes. <laughs> yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, well, what we've got behind 24 numbers here, Dan. Oh. Uh, what we've got behind each of those 24 is, an, is not a tune, but a, a picture. A It'd be great of, if it wasn't. It was, of, it was the Joker, wouldn't a bit, it? <laughs> a bit of visual stimulus. Uh, many of them related to, okay. uh, to events depicted in your, uh, okay. in your latest best-selling book. Thank you very but much. But also sprinkled in there. Right. Away. What Mark Allen and I, talking about it over the weekend, referred to as prog rock battleships. You know what I mean? <laughs> So, you know, if, yeah, you, yeah. if you hit a number, suddenly, you know, yeah, yeah. some terrible old record yeah, appears yeah, yeah. and you have to say something about it. So, so I so pick a number and it Pick will... a number between 1 and, and 24 and Number I'll... 10. Number 10. Number 10. Let's see okay. what we do. There you go. <laughs> now, uh, I... Uh, this is related to a story that you tell in your book, it isn't is it? A, it's, a, it's a story that used to close the uh, tour. Uh, every night, most of the nights, it closed the tour. And the tour came because... Um, let's go back to that. I, I, this time, oh, about a year and a, and a half ago, I decided I've, I've had enough. I don't want to, uh, that's it, that'll do me. Well, do I want to keep, you know, going around being a red nosed trouser dropping baggy pants or whatever it was? And I just said to me, I, I don't want to do anything else. That's it now. Life should have a third act. I may have even said it to you. And I said, I don't want to do anything else. Um, I said, I'll do The Jungle, which is what I did. And I had the time of my life, and it's a terrific gig, that. Uh, and I said, I'll do a few 
dates, you know, because stemming from doing Word in Your Ear, I just thought, I can do a few dates. I like doing this. I like telling the stories. Uh, but I don't need to do it in public anymore. I'm happy to do it in my private life. Um, so we, we, he said, OK, we'll see what's out there. And he set, hooked me up with a very high-powered Macintyres who do all the big tours. They do everybody's tours. And I felt a bit of an arrivist, written for comedians all my life. Stood in the wings, but never done, a, you know, not even stand-up, but that kind of performing. And he said, uh, look, there's some interest, you know, we've got uh, ten dates if you want to do them. I said, oh, I don't know what. I said, my bluff's been called here. Well, the ten turned into twenty, turned into thirty, forty, fifty, sixty. By the end of it, the show was three and a half hours long. And every <laughs> night, no, it was, and every night used to end with the story of my Uncle Godfrey's funeral. Uh, <laughs> which the, I, it's the obvious finale, isn't it? Well, it right? was, it was, because rather like the books, the whole thing became overwhelmed by the story of my old man. And I love doing my dad. I love, you know, Chan, I can do his voice terrifically. Uh, he's, uh, uh, and, but this story of the burial of his youngest brother... Um, uh, which I, I, you know what I, 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 I could do it but we literally it takes about 30 minutes <laughs> it, take, it takes about the only one who saw the tour knows this yeah. and it used to um, we used to run out of time believe it or not uh, and that's why it got shunted to the end because we, I, I'd get to the halfway uh, we, we started in Leeds on the tour hour and a half in the city variety in Leeds uh, hour and 35 minutes I went five minutes over because I'd never done it I came off apologising because I know there's people got to get home and there's stuff. Well, by the end of it, as most people know, even after ten dates, the show was three hours long, became three and a half hours long without an interval. But no, <laughs> nobody ever left. That's longer than Bruce Springsteen does I without did, an I, interval. Well, I used to make a joke about that. I said, I'm not Ken Dodd. Turns out I'm Ken Dodd. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I used to do... Uh, and this was always the finale, because you can't finish this story. Now, I'm not being a tease, no, and no. I don't think I'm selling you short, but if this takes a lot of setting up... It takes a lot of physical stuff. Right. Uh, and I won't... Uh, uh, this is not in my style at all, but I enjoyed doing that tour so much that ended with Godfrey's funeral and, right. as you say, a coffin, uh, which uh, it's all about being a pallbearer for the first time. And I set out with no intention of being a stand-up, having a bit. It was rather like we're talking now. But that story uh, didn't grow in the telling because the telling's been there for 40-odd years. Um, uh, and I thought... A lot of people didn't see the tour, especially in London. It sold out of the Shepherds Bush Empire very quickly. And so I'm starting another one in May. And I said, I still feel, you know, I'd like to do that again. I used to enjoy it. It seems people wanted to come and see it. So we're doing two more at the Shepherds Bush Empire, then that's it. However, I can tell you we're actually filming it at a really small venue in January. Right. Uh, so without, I know it'll be on the BBC, but so without not no, no, answering fine. the question. The, Godf the, the whole point of the Godfrey's... Uh, 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 casket, as they say in America, was the very healthy attitude my family had, and I believe a lot of working class people had to the big issues, the yeah, biggest yeah. being death, and that was what it was. Yeah. Uh, my dad, uh, and imbued in me, which is, as you know, the book is uh, the spine of it is having cancer, and uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, but the spine of it is that, and uh, uh, and it is that it's a tremendously uh, healthy thing to have that. Uh, uh, almost irreligious but certainly healthy disrespect for uh, things that shouldn't be laughed at and I remember very early on uh, my dad used to read the obituaries in the paper he used to get the South London Press and he would uh, he, we've written this for the second series of Cradle to Grave he used to sit there and that is really touchy now you know because unless you know this kind of culture but he used to sit there and say, uh, here, listen to this one, Bet. 
You went away that summer's day, and ever since then, none of us could play. We hope the Lord is in your care, and when you look, we will be, oh, fucking puts it. <laughs> and my mama say, a lightning bolt's gonna kill you, Fred. You're dead. Here's another one. Here's another one. Clive, not a day goes by that I don't have a tear in my eye. And she say, Fred, Fred, it's what that is, is people paying respect. Respect? Fucking two bob a word, that's what that is to the South London press. Do me a favour, Bet. When I go, don't put me next to a fucking advert or a garage. Right? <laughs> now, I ain't making that up. That's how my old man spoke. And he used to do this sing-song thing. But he loved reading the yeah, yeah, yeah. which, of course, is a, it's a minor cousin to the big story about the casket. But hearing him do that, you thought, this is really wrong. Yeah. And my mum did used to say, a lightning bolt's going to kill you, Fred. But she used to giggle as he did it. Who's one for a dog here? <laughs> Hey, dog. hey, fucking dog, look, Rover's gone. And, or sometimes you go, George, do you think that's old Georgie Says used to live in the flats? And I, I, we don't know, but he used to love, love an obituary column. And to this day, I cannot read gravestones without hearing these. Pick sorry, another pick number. Pick another number, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, they're, they're number five. Let's go number down exactly five. half and go to number five. Number five. Work for me. Work for me. Yes! Oh, okay. There so we go. what we're seeing on screen here is a photo of the royal princes. Yeah. And that's in the book. I have uh, uh, been a writer uh, 40 odd years, you know, uh, because apart from that book, I've got the, the kids' book out, which make everyone roll their eyes. But people forget I'm a writer who got sidetracked into all the hoopla of TV and whatever it is I've done for 40 odd years. And, uh, uh, and I've been a writer a very long time and I've written. As they always say, almost for everyone, from Ricky Gervais to, uh, to, 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 to God knows. I mean, you know the comedians I've written for, to uh, George Burns. I even got to write for George Burns once. I've written award shows, TV shows, every kind of writing. But uh, because behind the scenes my reputation is like that, uh, I got an instruction from the palace once. My agent rang up and said, um, we've had a thing coming from the court of St James. And I said... Go on. And he said, uh, there's this thing coming up, the anniversary of Diana's death. Um, do you, um, they, they're doing a big day at Wembley called the Concert for Diana. Yeah. And they want you to write it. So I said, I can do that. Now, of course I can do that. And the fee was very, you know, really extraordinarily healthy. So I said, OK. <laughs> and I said, you have to go to the palace first to be vetted. And that was all fine. You go along the... Uh, you went to the palace? Yeah, to be vetted. You some equerry takes over. And you go in and you sit in a room and they just, you know, you know, just check your way out. I mean, I kind of checked it out too much because I said, it's Fred Baker's boy, it's kind of that. He was known as Red Fred for a while and he's not, he wasn't necessarily, a, he used to call the Royal Family Liquors. Look at them all. There they go, the Liquors. <laughs> I don't know, Liquors, all the Royal Family were Liquors, right? Uh, so uh, they liked the Queen, but the rest of them were all Liquors. Uh, so the, the Prince, it's nothing to do with him. So I, don't, but so I went along and it was a gig, you know, and they said, everyone's going to be at it and sure enough everyone was uh, the last time probably uh, I did one of these David I used to say to the audience you know one of my favourite questions is have you ever met Madonna because you know this do you 
ask me if I've ever met Madonna. Have you ever met Madonna, Dan? I don't know. All right. I don't know. I think I did. I'm not sure. Right? And that's all because uh, that's a, the story where I, I went out to dinner with Sire Records in 1980 because my uh, that, there's a huge backstory to that. But I sat at a table with the Ramones, the Talking Heads, the Paley Brothers, all the artists of Sire, and this wonderful woman next to me, this blonde woman next to me, who got on great. But Madonna released her latest record on Sire that same year. And so I think, oh, it must have been Madonna. It must have been. It must have been. Equally, when we come back to the two princes here, ask me if I've ever met Kanye West. Have you ever met Kanye West? I don't know. I think... Because he was one of the turns there. And it was only when I was researching the book, I thought, who was I writing it for? Because I had to write the intros for everyone. On my own, there was neither writers. Uh, delivered the script, and that was all accepted, and uh, except for the speech for the two princes, which we'll come to. Uh, but I went round everyone's dressing room. It was so competitive. American managers would say, you've... Uh, Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas, um, she's on after, you know, whoever it was, Beyonce, I don't know. Uh, and you've given her six more words in your intro and you've said she sold this, can't you change that? All day, that's all it was. Succession of American managers telling me to change it, make theirs yeah, yeah. better. Anyway, so Kanye West, I found out when I was looking back who was on that bill, I must have spoke to him, so I must have met him, don't remember it. So the two princes, um, I wrote this speech for them, which was just fantastic. <laughs> It really was. It, no, it, it really was. It's, a it's in the book. It's very it, good. It, and it, it laid down. I didn't know what to do. I thought, so I sent it off to him. This is to open the day. Please welcome to the stage uh, Prince Harry, Prince William. And out they come, and I wrote this speech, which is in the book, and it, it's pretty good. It's pretty, it's, there's some pretty rich stuff in there. It's very it? good it's stuff. It's real good. It opens with them saying, and I'm not, you know, this is my job on the day, and Britain would have just sobbed into his handkerchief. <laughs> it was... She was our mother. She was our mother. And in an age where princesses, quite rightly, are deemed to be, you know, blah, 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 this all too real slayer of dragons in a modern sense, blah, 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 blah. It was just fantastic. I was laying it on thick. I thought, that's so great. And so uh, on this day, we gather, blah, 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 for this, whatever, who a woman just to us was our mother. We'd like to say, enjoy the day. Uh, please celebrate all that's best in the angels of human nature. Oh, and one other thing. And they turned to the big screen behind them. Happy birthday, Mum. Shh! <laughs> oh, some spin on the ball there, I fancy. So, <laughs> oh, and the palace got back and said, no, we can't use it. I said, what? That's, that word's boom, it came out in one long... I said, you're kidding. They said no. it was too... What did they personal. Say? Too, oh, yeah, sorry. It was, too, it was personal, which, of course, now is the way they go. Yeah, then yeah. the palace was still, no, 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 it has to be, you know, anodyne and not, you know, it must be direct. Yeah, yeah. This was direct. Just like the princes do now when they talk about she was Emma. It was, it's in the book anyway. It was a great speech. Like, OK. And they, they supplanted it with something. As quite well, anodyne. didn't they just go on stage and no. go, hello, Wembley? Oh, Woo. that was all the other turns. I wrote this stuff for the other turns. Turns, which was brilliant. But as soon as they ran out on the stage and the auto queue was there, all the rest of them, Black Eyed Peas and whoever was there that day, some real big turns all walked out and just blanked and just went, hey, how you doing? That's fine. I was still going to get the same money. And the only one who didn't, the only one who didn't was, um, uh, oh, that's a great speech as well. Uh, 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 easy Rider. Um, uh, 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 Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper did it word for word. It's a deep Very deep. good. Oh, it's brilliant, Dennis Hopper's one. It's, oh, Dennis Hopper. It is, it is hooey of the first water. It is, a, it is honestly, I'm, honestly, it is just, but I knew when I wrote it, oh, oh, oh that's so 
good because it is emotive and it's empty and it's just it's it was and he did it and he god bless him he did it word for word and he came up and he and he got Big round of applause. Okay, you know the thing was it ended about. Uh, I remember I can't remember anymore. And it was like uh, the ending of it was. So whoever wrote that somebody's grasp shouldn't exceed their reach. Uh, re- okay. he, that, he said they didn't know what they were talking about. Don't, don't think outside the box. And it was all this kind. Of, it was really brilliant. He said, and he had to end by saying, "So let the angels of our better mercy rule today. On a day like today, you know, reach. That's the word, reach." Ladies and gentlemen, status quo. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> it was that. And I went to him afterwards and he came off and he was laughing. I said, uh, 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 and he said, is that okay? I said, yeah, I wrote that. And he hugged me, killing himself laughing, as if to say, this is what we do, right? And <laughs> at any rate, so, but all day I was down below Wembley Stadium in a little windowless room. Uh, and with his succession of managers and flunkies turning up saying, could you change this? Could you say we've sold 18 million, not 16 million? And that's your job. But I didn't... Anyway, but Wendy and the kids uh, was there in Wembley. And it was a long day. And I said, I've written the script. I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, I'll come and see you in about an hour. See how you're doing. I didn't get out of that room all day. I was sitting there and all I'm thinking is, when's going to be absolutely boiling? Because she always says, don't just leave me up there, you know, all day. It's a long day, you know. We'd be... And I did, and I left them. I got there about 8.30, and it was 8.39 by the time Elton John and Paul McCartney and everyone was finishing. And all I'm thinking is, hurry up. <laughs> I'm looking up and they had terrible seats apparently up in the gods. I hadn't seen them all day. And we're finished and Wembley's going mad and I run down to this little room and I pack my laptop away and as I'm packing it away the equerry who I've been dealing with came and said Danny thank you so much that's lovely I'm glad the job's done that's all terrific uh, I said now I've got to have to and he said um, it's one thing I must uh, uh, inform you of uh, one late uh, treat um, the Royal Highnesses uh, are having a small reception upstairs for just a few people they would love to thank you for your work and I meaning that I said do you know what I'd love to but I've got to shoot off <laughs> and he looked at me, and as he looked at me, I thought, he's not just inviting me, he's telling me. And I, looked, I said, yeah. honestly, no, my wife's been asking my wife, because the security was obviously, he said, we can't do it. I said, I'm going to go. Just so they won't miss me. I said, it'll be fine. I, I'm going to go. And I've got my bag and I'm leaving. And he went, it'll be about 45 minutes. I said, no, I'm going home. I'm going home. Just say I had to shoot off. And as I went away, I thought, he's probably never asked. I'm saying, no, 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 mate, I can't have that. And so, uh, not that I I don't it ever come my way, but at that moment, they got the next uh, House of Lords bill and just scratched one name on it (laughs) because he had to shoot off. But the the point of the story is that in a a career as a sale, I've written Chris Evans, Jonathan Ross, anyone you want to name, Peter Kay, I've written uh, all of these. And, and, you know, upwards and downwards, equally a Dale Winton and people. But we've been a job in writer. Always charge a lot of money, but that was probably the oddest. Either uh, uh, what you look at as the crowning achievement, or a pretty weird gig for an old enemy yeah. writer to be writing have you concert t- for Diana. Have you turned down any of those writing gigs? And then if the re- money, and then don't re- turn them down. I ain't being funny. That, that's purely and simply it. I've written the Baftas. I've written the Comedy Awards for better or worse. Because that became a bear pit. I took that over after a couple of years. The first year Jonathan did it, I said, "You've got to make these like the American roasts." And I, I, I'm not suggesting for a second, no, look, let me put it another way. I'm suggesting for a second. Um, and, and it was a poison chalice because award ceremonies had been, certainly on this side of the Atlantic, had been quite 
you know, uh, uh, polite, staid affairs. And I remember writing that first one for Jonathan Ross, and I said, it's got to be more like the American roasts. You go up there. I said, no. And I remember the first joke. It was after Robert Maxwell had died, and the set was this ocean liner. <laughs> and, I, and Jonathan and I said, well, welcome, everybody, to Lady Jelaine the Musical. That was the name of the boat that he died on. He committed suicide on. <laughs> Lady Jelaine. And everyone went, oh, like that. And he said, and, and we went into this thing, and he was doing it brilliantly because, you know, Jonathan could do that. He can do it absolutely brilliantly. And people thought, ooh. This ain't where we was going to go. And I remember Angus Deaton was sitting at a table about 10 feet away. And he looked round to uh, Richard Curtis. And I, I, say, I say this without a blush at all. And he said, the script's very bright. And when we got the first ad break, I went across and said, I wrote this. And I worked with Angus after that for eight years. Uh, I, did every, I did so many scripts for Angus after that. And nobody would ever put us two together. I was the dad's bloke, you know, and all of that. And that's, that's fine. So I never wanted any of that from no kudos. People shouldn't know who writes things. I probably said this before. Wendy always used to say when I did a show, or a comedian would be doing a big show, or one of the, you know, like the BAFTAs, and jokes would get a laugh. She would get furious when and say, yeah, but you wrote that. You wrote. I said, well, it doesn't matter, my gig is to make them look bulletproof, you know, whoever it is. You know, there's no, I've got no certain style, I'll write to wherever it is. Yeah, but I don't like them, you know. It's, don't you get frustrated? I said, no. Oh, I would. I, I think people should know you wrote. I said, when? You know, it's about the fee. It's just about... And she said, I don't... And I said, well, all right, uh, what's your favourite film? Gone with the Wind. Who wrote the screenplay? Aha, exactly. You know, you're... And, uh, but I don't see any... Any, you know, a climb down in reputation, a writer writes it, and that's what it should be. You know, you write and you make them look good. That's why they pay you the money. Never turned anything down. The only person I couldn't write for, David, how about this? The only time I was ever defeated, I was asked by ITV to do um, the ITV Awards one year, and Trevor McDonald was the uh, host of it. And he's a terrific bloke, Trevor, but he does have that very stilted way of talking. And it's very clipped. But I wrote what I thought was a great intro. And he said, I, I, I can't do that. And I thought, no, he's right. It doesn't sound like what he'd say. Because what he'd say isn't necessarily whiz-bangs and all of this. And we had to agree after a few meetings. I gave them feedback. And I said, I can't write for a... Not because he's no good, but it's a completely yeah. different discipline. I'm used to fellows who can do that. And quite rightly, I couldn't... I mean, I wrote this whole opening sketch of him being in The Sound of Music, which was ambitious, to say the least. <laughs> He, he came down as Captain Von Trapp. It was a brilliant thing. But he said, I, 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 I don't want to do that. And I thought, <laughs> you, you know, you come down, and, uh, and, which was fine. But the, the only time I've ever given the money back uh, was, was that. It, it didn't work at right. all. But otherwise, uh, I, I'm, being a gun for hire and all, it's a lot of fun. I, I, there's another story in the book about when Radio 4 come to see me because they thought I was on the skids, uh, whatever that show was called, On the Ropes or something. Yeah, yeah On the Ropes. And John Humphreys and his team kept saying, can we interview, can you interview? And I was doing TFL Friday at the time. I said, no, not really, no, I, you know, I don't do Radio 4 to pay about 250 quid, with all due respect to Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed your own series on Radio 3 that's just going out right now. But I, uh, I, I said, no, it's not, I, you know, I've never looked at, never, anyway. So the, but it kept on and on and on. They said, we'll come to you. Well, okay, I couldn't be that rude. I said, okay, you know, there's an hour in the middle of the day, and I realise it's a show about people who have become showbiz Icaruses and flown too near the sun. <laughs> and about three questions in, John Humphreys, I realised his tone was, where did it all go wrong then? <laughs> and I said, I, I think I've got the wrong end of the stick here. And he said, I think we have too. <laughs> could be, he said, but surely when you're writing with Chris Evans here on Tip by Friday, you think that could be me going out there, that could be me doing that. 
I said, John, you don't know how far north of the correct answer that is. Because when me and Chris used to do TFI, the last thing before he went out and the music went, boom, ding, 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 da, 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 he'd be putting his shirt on. And we've been talking all day about what's in the show and what ain't in the show. And... He and, I, and we would finish and say, right, so that's it. We'll go straight from that to that. We'll be in the break. You come out of it and do that. Yeah, yeah. And I would say to him, now, you, Chris, you've got to go and do it. And all he ever wanted was some hotshot kid to take the yeah. duties off he him. He didn't as want well. to do it. No, he was written for Jonathan Ross. Here by Friday was written for Jonathan Ross. And him and Jonathan fell out and he didn't want to do it. So Chris took it over. But the idea that I wanted to be the host of, you know, and I was standing, you know, standing in the wings saying, big town, I'll get you yet. I'll, I'll come back. <laughs> I, the, the perception of me from Radio 4 as, as some kind of fallen idol, it was both humiliating and hilarious. Right. Uh, but, and, 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 and so that show went out. So anyway, all I'm saying is that, yeah, there's been some... Uh, my behind-the-scenes stuff, I've put no more value on than selling soap powder. Right. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a terrific racket. Pick a number. Number one. Number one. Ah! Oh. <laughs> a photograph has just emerged of... Mr. Entertainment himself, Huey Green. <laughs> Huey Green, uh, is, again, features in the book, and I've been telling these stories for a long while, and I didn't mean the book to be quite as... Uh, I knew I had to leaven the cancerous bread because it's uh, the very first time in my entire life that the word unflinching and... Um, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's very heavy, the cancer stuff, but it's, so it was. But that's the first time I've ever done it, even Wendy. And kids had never, ever heard what it actually was like from my perspective and that's it we've done and that's fine uh, but I knew I had to keep leavening the bread and I just thought rather like the radio one domino tumbles another and it led me to Huey Green who was without doubt the most foul mouthed man <laughs> I've ever met in my life and it's so odd because people who don't know who Huey Green was he was the most avuncular and your uh, family were dockers weren't they to be my fair fam- so, yeah. no, oh man alive you know I, I was, I've never heard anybody <laughs> I've never heard anybody to this day swear like he did outside of certain scenes in The Sopranos. I've never heard anybody swear like Huey Green. And Huey, by this time, he was a fallen idol because he was, as we know, for 30, 40 years uh, uh, a mainstay of British television, but uh, without you know, patronising people. If you don't know who Huey Green was, he was the most avuncular, unctuous, uh, but very successful. And his catchphrase was, and I mean that most sincerely. Most I mean that most sincerely. Who are you, darling? Uh, my name's Doris from Sir... Then she wonderful, ladies and gentlemen. He was the template for so many other, you know, uh, people who got sent up in that manner. But it, that was his... And God bless him, and he made a very good living out of it. And he was also a very uh, courageous Canadian pilot in the Second World War. Uh, but he, uh, my phone went one day indoors, and Huey hadn't been on television for four or five years. And I don't know how he got the number, and my phone went, and I picked up and went, hello? And he went, is that that cocksucker Danny Baker there? <laughs> uh, up to a point. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, listen here, you little pissant. This is Huey Green. I got a fucking idea for you. He's going to make the shit run down your fucking leg. <laughs> Honestly, it started, and I was like, OK, um, yeah, well, now, listen, I, I know what you're thinking. Why about an old prick like me be ringing at the... Like, at least he was right there. So I thought... <laughs> uh, anyway, it began like that, and it continued like that, and I'm... I'm oh, OK. Um, now, yeah, I want one you to do, because i got an idea for you, and I, honestly, I don't want to lay on the expletives. They're all in the book. And when I'm writing it in the book, I'm, I do think... 
this is not my style at all. You know, I'm not someone who puts asterisks in. No, you, I, you I, don't I, go in that. No, I don't. That I mean, uh, swearing is funny if it's on the beat, you know. Uh, you know, absolutely is funny yeah. and absolutely sometimes, and I'm sparing with it, but there was no way of writing this story without saying, this is what it was like. And I was. But I don't know whether he was doing it because he felt I was off the streets and he wanted to show, look, I'm not that Huey Green, you know. But it was so over the top. And I've learned since that's how he spoke. He was like that. He was, anyway. Uh, but it was absolutely psychedelically foul mouth. <laughs> His plan, he said, I wanted to. I, I won't do it. I even wanted him to come and see him at this flat he had uh, on Baker Street. Uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful place, you know, because he was quite rich, Huey Green, but he was say he, he hadn't been on television for some time. I think he saw me as the gatekeeper to Chris Evans, although he may have looked at the role and thought that guy writes it. Uh, and he thought I was the gatekeeper that, and he had me over there, and I remember the door, he opened the third floor apartment he had in, in Baker Street, beautiful, very male, very uh, 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 kind of leather and, and uh, Chesterfields, very like, you know, the, you're sitting on there, David, it was very, uh, lots of dark colours and, and, and uh, horns on the wall and things. Uh, and he sat down, he gave me a special brew, I'll never forget that, which I've never drunk in my life, I can't bear it. I can't bear it. Here, I got a fucking drink for you. I know you probably don't drink whiskey, you little pansy. And... <laughs> I hadn't said a word by it. You know. uh, have a fucking... So, I, so I'm sipping this special brew. Uh, and, he's, and he eventually took me over, he said, right, you want it? Anyway, so we went over to this door. And he pressed the button in and the door swung open. And he said, I've only ever allowed three guys to come in here ever. So we walked in and he turned the lights. And there was this enormous train set. Massive train set. Now, I, I don't, you know, people will show you train sets, as I wrote in the book. Other men like to show men their train sets, despite the fact the man they're showing it to doesn't have a train set. People will do that. I mean, Rod Stewart's got his, Neil Young has his. Well, Huey had this very impressive train set, but it's a train set, you know? <laughs> anyway, he said, look at that. What do you think of that? This is all key to the idea. Stay with me. So these trains are all whizzing around. Anyway, I, know what, I know what you're thinking now. You just, you want to be on the controls. You want to wear the hat and everything. The hat? <laughs> right? So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, great, you, yeah. But it's not about that, and that's enough of this. Because if I was just pitching you a show on a train, that'd be just bullshit. Because, and so I said, okay, all right, so it's bigger than that. So I said, okay, what do you see over there? And on the far wall where the, the train set went, there was a tableau painted on the wall of a uh, uh, coast, a uh, bay, and the, and the ocean going off, and the moon on the ocean. It was on the wall over there, you know. And I said, well, it's a, a painting of uh, the sea. That's not a painting, you cocksucker. That's not a painting of the sea. Fuck me if I'd have thought you were that stupid. Of that. He went, that is the Atlantic fucking ocean, my friend. Okay, it's the Atlantic ocean. He said, because what's going to happen? And this was his idea for this show he wanted me to do. He wanted the train... To the show to start on a train in London, then go across to the coast, uh, down to Cornwall or somewhere, where everyone on the show, and there was going to be Shirley Bassey and get on a nuclear submarine, <laughs> which would then go under the ocean to the Hudson River and, sub and, and emerge just before the Statue of Liberty, where all the cast would then come. It's going to be the first. If people who watch it on Friday won't bear to miss it on Saturday, three days across the Atlantic. I've got the connections for the nuclear submarine and everything. And all I'm thinking is, Jesus Christ, in a moment he's going to say, so what do you think? <laughs> and I'm going, 
Yeah, they go, and they'll come up in the uh, uh, yeah, and arise in front of the Statue of Liberty, global audience, the hybrid. And so, what do you think? And I and I, and I just call. Oh, do you know what? That's cool. and um, uh, I said, said we lose the signal halfway across. <laughs> Oh, here we go, nitpicking. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking, no, because if, you know, if, 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 if Manhattan Transfer and, 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 and Shirley Bassey are giving it their best two miles under the Atlantic Ocean and nobody's seeing it, <laughs> the whole thing is, is, that's the kind of show I'd like to do. There's no signal getting out and everyone's down there <laughs> for no reason at all. Anyway, uh, Huey, uh, I made enough, uh, I think, of the right noises to get and it was kind of sad because there was a fellow who had been at the top and he had this one idea to go do his last ever broadcast aboard a nuclear submarine and touching that he thought I had somehow of making this happen uh, and the, the whole point about that in, in, in the book is just to say that you know, after a while, I had such a reputation as a writer that people said, if you want to make that happen, go to him. But yeah. Huey Green representing the old showbiz, clashing up with TF5 representing the yeah. cutting edge. But it was the most extraordinary experience. <laughs> and it was only as I was writing, I hadn't thought about that story for ages. Yeah. And as I was writing, I just thought, man alive, Hugh, that Huey Green story. And as you're writing it, you're killing yourself. I mean, I do, I enjoy writing it a lot. It's a fantastic but, Because that's how it happened. Pick number a number. number. Uh, I'll go, let's go up number 22. I'm the born on the 22nd 22. of June. 22. There you go, as I said. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, prog rock battleships. Or, it well, is... it's not prog rock, whatever. I mean, you, you love John Martin. I, John Martin, I adored. Uh, I did a radio show the day he died. I was told minutes before I went on the air that he died, and I don't think I've ever been that rattled. Uh, by uh, any kind of sort of uh, celebrity death. Oh, dear, we lost dear old Keith Chegwin today. Yes. Uh, as a friend of mine and a, and, and a Trojan, a real, he could work so hard, Keith. Uh, but to me, he was always the vocalist of the Third Ear Band. Uh, there may be people here who don't know that. Yes, he was a Third Ear Band, uh, just about as difficult a sell as you're going to get on radio, but they made a soundtrack for a film called Macbeth, and, and Keith was a... a, a, a Proper actor until he was about 15, 16, and then got seduced by Telly. But and he's in there. He's in this quite difficult version of Macbeth. And the third ear band did the soundtrack, and he sings one song, opening track on side two called Fieldy, I think. And uh, it's one of the most wonderful songs. I mean, it's right up there with Nick Drake and everything. It's a wonderful folk, eerie folk song. And uh, every time I met Keith, I'd say, "Aye, aye, it's the former lead singer of the third ear band." <laughs> right. But John Martin, equally, uh, uh, just coming back. Of, even though it's been, what, 10 years now since John went? I don't know. John Martin meant absolutely everything to us. And it's all wrapped up, if you saw Cradle to Grave, in me being seduced by my art teacher, because she introduced me to him. Uh, a solid air, uh, it was actually Bless the Weather was on the turntable when, if you've seen it, she uh, made a, a, a signature move. Did she uh, also make a move on Chris Difford? Didn't make a move on Chris Difford. She did, uh, did, 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 she got checkmate on Chris Difford. <laughs> Chris, Chris, Christopher was sitting where you're sitting about yeah. a month ago, telling the well, story. Well, it's a difficult thing these days because of the, you know, as we know, the climate we live in, and one takes it. But we, yeah, she was a game old gal, and she was fantastic looking. Uh, we had to change her character radically for the series, and there was a lot of the BBC saying this could be seen as, you know, paedophilia, and so it could be in that kind of, you know, the 15, 16 year olds, or 14, 15, 16 year olds, uh, West Greenwich. Never the reputation was there, and she, uh, uh, you know, I the only t- time I've ever turned tail and run. It was a ludicrous thing. Uh, I, I won't, no, honestly, this is too difficult to talk about. But everyone wanted to take a crack at that. But, but the... <laughs> they, oh, <laughs> this woman. 
There's inevitably in the book there's a few reflections on the you know, passing of time and change of uh, mores and so forth. Mm. I think you talk about there's a character called Billy the Bummer. Billy the Bummer. See, that's, again, I don't, I don't, I mean, God love the modern era and that's all fine. I'm not one who sits and goes, oh, years ago, but I understand. That's, that's gone. But what I don't like is the demonisation, uh, the necessary demonisation of the post-war years up till now because there's this whole consensus of that we're smarter now or people than they've ever been, which is simply not true. And the idea that the 70s were this absolute cesspit of racism, it simply isn't borne out by the facts. For every time you can point to, you know, uh, uh, mind your language, we can point to the likely lads and walk them wise. That, that didn't happen, you know. I went to a school that was 60, 40 black and white, but it's necessary to de- demonise the culture then to make people feel better about themselves now. It's the arrogance of chronology, saying, oh, look at the people would... It would no smarter than anyone ever was, which is why the phrase I hate the most is is ahead of their time. When people say about W.C. Fields or the Marx Brothers or even Buster Keaton, so ahead of his time, like now was smart enough to get it. Those people made millions in their day. You know, this idea that, oh, things are better now or, 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 or anything else. But... Billy the Bummer, uh, which is, again, a difficult phrase, but Bill was part of my dad's circle. And rather like there was Jules the Fish, um, Cliff the Rail, because he worked on the rail. Not everyone had these kind of epithets. But Billy the Bummer, because he, he, was, he, was, he was, as I used to say, queer. And they used to say, they used to say sitting around the pub, and I'd sit there. And it's, it's, yes, of course, who knows how he was tortured or whatever. We don't know that. But, and they didn't, they, you know, he knew he was Billy the Bummer because he enjoyed bumming people. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is so, but they say, fucking hell, Billy, he'd come in, and he, the thing is, Billy would come in and sit down and go, boys, don't ask me where I've been. Ah, fucking hell. <laughs> Honest, at the card table, Billy, fucking hell, Bill, where have you been? <laughs> London, London, one of them ones under the arches. And, it, and they would like, it was very robust. And when Billy did get uh, arrested and imprisoned, he did two years, uh, Billy, for indeed bumming, right? I <laughs> know, oh, it's awful. But when he came out after about 14 months, he took his position back at the card table and all the stories were like, yeah, tell you I saw in there down at Maidstone and they'd all be talking about... Now, I'm not saying for a second that there weren't, you know, uh, uh, wrong language used and whatever, but Bill was seen as an eccentric... and Yeah, and the thing was... And he would turn around... He was a very robust character. Not every gay bloke could do that. Certainly Joe Orton could, and he was of a piece with Joe Orton. Right. You know, a bloke would come up to the bar. And my old man would tell me this later, and Billy would go, who's that, Spud? Who's that, Bill? Leave up, leave up. He's married to someone. I don't know, but... He liked blokes, but he was not... So they would say this, and the only reason I included the stories about Billy in there is because I, I am a little tired of this idea that... Everyone was a Neanderthal in the 70s, and our parents worse than that, and the further you go back. And it's only now, now I think this will be looked at as a completely extraordinary era. It's, a, mm. it's not, you know, there's plenty of good in all of that, but there's a new puritanism of thought, which is frankly peculiar, and we'll be looked at it like that, but we need to go through this to get to somewhere else, I suspect. Yeah. But I do, I, I, I do not like the idea that... I tell you what, I, I did a thing with BBC Four uh, uh, about um, the people's history of pop, and uh, I was in the... I didn't really do it. I didn't have time to do it. I said, oh, I can give you the voiceover and I can, you know, have a look at the script. And I sat in the voiceover booth 
and it got to, because I was doing the 1970s, I think it's been repeated on Thursday, I think it is, uh, and I like work with BBC Four, but the, the script came up and it was all about, um, and it was a little bit, and I toned it down about all the kind of, we were all mad, we're in, you know, David Bowie fans, it just simply isn't like that, and uh, nobody's record collection, they say, you had your heavy metal fans, you had your prog fans, you had your soul fans, no, no, I had Al Green people. records, I had Stevie Wonder records, I had Emerson Lang and Palmer, yeah. you bought records. So, but I was watching this in the voiceover booth, and I hadn't seen, because I'd been out on the filming of it, and this uh, black fella in Peckham suddenly turns up, and the script had, had said, uh, being black in England was being marginalised until the appearance of a certain uh, 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 maverick light that had turned up in Britain, in, and on come Bob Marley, and I, just, I said, well, I can't say that, I said, that's not true. And they said, well, and they showed the fella saying, you know, because they'd asked him to say it, until I felt so alone until the whalers. I said, that ain't true. I said, I know it fits the narrative that Marley came along. I said, but do you know how many reggae records were in the charts in yeah. the 60s? Liquidate, it was a huge hit. Young, gifted and black, massive hit. People didn't, this fella's good enough because he wants to be on television. But that ain't true. And they go, um, just for the purposes. Of, I said, no, not for the purposes of this. I'm not yeah. saying that. I yeah. said, because that suggests that this fella was, I said, whatever he's saying, he was lonely until Marley came along. I said, Marley first came over here with Johnny Nash as far as... But it's not about that. It's this idea of learning about media studies and learning about music, and it fits a nice narrative that says, oh, those people then didn't know, but we now, you know, they were, yeah. he was ahead of his time. It just isn't true. It, 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 and, and I, I, you know, I don't say it's better or ever, but it simply isn't that cut-and-dried thing that Bob Marley came along like a saviour and suddenly... go. It ain't true. It does no, a disservice no. to everybody from Otis Redding to, uh, you know, to the liquidator or whatever. I mean, I used to work in a record shop, as you know, in the 72, 73. We couldn't get enough big youth records. I'm not saying society's perfect, but it doesn't do any favours to suggest that, that, well, to lie. And yeah. so that until, and it's also so crass to say Bob Marley came along and he was the first black person on Top of the Pops anyone had ever seen. That no. is not true. <laughs> it's just not true. So um, anyway, we, we, I don't know how that answers the John Martin question. Yeah. But, <laughs> I don't, but uh, John Martin to me, uh, and I even went to the, the Fiddlers one night and with good grace, uh, we wouldn't, we'd do, probably do that with Marky e. Smith or someone these days. John didn't turn up. We always, as soon as they said, we're going to have to hold the uh, uh, curtain for like another half an hour. But he's not coming. He's not coming. <laughs> uh, and I saw him at Goldsmiths College. And, uh, 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 you know, and I, I just, John Martin speaks to me on, on a level that is, you know, almost like Keith Chegman with the third ear band. Right, it's, right. It's, That's as good as it gets. Pick it's a number. Number, number, uh, number 24. Number 24. See if we can get that up. <coughs> it's working well. Just tell me who it is. I remember that. <laughs> and we'll pretend. Uh, tell me who it is, and we'll pretend it's come up. There you oh, go. No. BBC. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the... It's a photo of my mother. Thank you very much. <laughs> For the benefit of people listening at home, that is the, uh, the the branding of BBC Radio London. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, I, I I I may roll the eyes because you know. I, it, the catharsis has been achieved. It's now become a, a, a good gag to use them as a pinata and all of that. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, but it, the, the, the story is very funny. I hope in the book everyone knows that. Everyone probably heard that show that day. Uh, 
Uh, all that does make me say, though, is in, even in my semi-retirement, which it is now, you know, I've, I've done very little this year, uh, vis- you know, uh, visibly apart from the tour. Uh, I, I would, yeah, I would still, that, that was the best uh, I'd ever work. And that would, you know, and I don't get it. And no, no, thank you. That's very nice. Thank you very much indeed. Son, thank you. That was a... <laughs> Uh, no, it was, it, it, was, it was, and we know that, and I know, I know when you've done good work, I know certainly there's enough we can point to where you've done bad work, but that was as good work yet, so I don't understand it, I'll never understand it, but I'm in very great danger now of harping on about it, it was a long time ago, it was, uh, uh, 2012 was it, um, I don't get that, but I understand now that the, like the music uh, landscape, the, you know, the radio landscape has shifted in such a way that I'll never do that again, which is a shame. I'd, I'd love to do music radio, but it's not going to... I know it's Amy LeMay just got herself a gig at Six Radio. Balian works at Radio 2. Me, literally. Well, you see, that's the, incident, that's the thing I wanted to, to ask you about, because you've won a lot of radio awards, haven't you? Yeah, I've done Radio Hall of... Well, I was, the week after I stormed out of BBC London, I was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Every time I look up... Every time I look up, you're getting an award for, for this man is a, is a master radio oh, broadcaster. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and then the when best. I look the other way, this man's getting fired okay. by the, well, you know, get, the same get, radio station. The different thing is, it ain't fired so much, David. Nobody, people say, oh, you must be able to do... Nobody has offered me a radio show since that day. None. Nothing. This In, is encomiums, yes. Awards, yes. I don't, I mean, the last four or five years, believe it or not, and I, it's very ungracious of me, but I haven't even... I've said no... No, there's no point. I'll say something ungracious if I go up there. You know, I can't keep beating the same, you know, Aunt Sally with the... Th- uh, so I don't go anymore. Uh, and when I did get the Radio Hall of Fame thing, the Radio Hall of Fame, the week afterwards, uh, I, I looked through and people like Charlie Chester was in it and Arthur Askey. I thought, oh, <laughs> All yeah. the greats. I know. And Kenny Everett and people. Uh, and Chris Evans wasn't, so I thought, oh, I'll have that. And I went there and people sat forward in their seats. It was a week after the explosive exit from BBC London. And I thought, I knew then this don't make sense. I knew, as I often said, if I walked out of here and got run over by a steamroller, oh, brilliant broadcast, oh, my God, you know, oh, the, actually give us shows? No, no, that don't work. John Peel, as we know, was shunted into the middle of the night, dies, they name a wing of the BBC. Absolutely. And that, that is, that's... But that's, you know, so, so, um, if uh, that's all I relied on to make my living, it might be a little more caustic. But I, I went to that um, Radio Hall of Fame and Peter Kay introduced me, did about 20 minutes. I, remember, I think it was uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, it was up in Manchester, was going to give me the thing, been inducted in it for that year. And everyone thought, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? Uh, and BBC London didn't show up. Uh, their table was empty. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, I, I genuinely don't know why on earth they wanted to get rid of us. Well, I do, in terms of tall poppy syndrome. You, I wouldn't get on the fucking stupid BBC London bus and go to Hackney to talk about dog shit on the pavement. Uh, I, think, I think this capital's a little grander than that. Uh, and, and, you know, anyway, it, it was all about appliant a, a talent roster and all of that. And so I turned up at this Manchester thing and everyone thought, oh, this is it, the last award of the night. Here he goes. Uh, and the whole radio industry was there. And... Uh, there was uh, this unspeakable glass bowl they give you. So um, it is, it's worse than the one you get when in Mastermind. It's just this, anyway. So in Radio Hall of Fame, and uh, they said, sort of, 2011 Radio Hall of Fame, 
Donny Booker. And everyone, you know, everyone stood up and all this. And I ain't got a job in radio. Apart from the little dog and pony show on Saturday mornings, that's it. Uh, so, uh, and I took the mic and I thought, oh, I know what to do here. Because I do remember, and this ain't, ain't blowing smoke here, I remember you uh, showing a Leonard Cohen acceptance speech once, which was the epitome oh, right, of yeah. style, graciousness, and humility, which is three things, you know. <laughs> I'll never lay claim. But I remember, and, and so I, I thought about it before, and I thought, they're all ready for me to there and stand here. And, and, and so I went up and I said, thank you very much. And everyone leant forward. I said, do you know what? There's obviously, in like a recent event, so much I could say right now about both the radio industry and my own personal fortunes within it. To be in the Radio Hall of Fame is both surreal and magnificent. So I think the right thing to do at this moment, rather than be ungracious, is to say, thank you very much. And I walked up and everyone stopped and they thought, oh. oh. But, <laughs> but then they thought, oh, oh, oh. And as I'm walking out, I've got this big round, I thought, that's made them look like a real piece of shit there, isn't it? <laughs> I, that's, that was the best thing I got. It made BBC London look like weasels and stuff. Ah, oh, how could they? And it actually played out very well. But that's what I said that night, uh, a week but later in Manchester. You do do radio exceptionally well because it all strikes me you're completely in charge in the way that you do radio, whereas most radio presenters are not completely in charge. Yeah, but that, that suggests that there's a... I mean, the show is what it is. And when I first started radio, oh, nine years after I started television... Uh, and I was in BBC GLR, offered us a gig there. I thought that's what you did. I thought you brought in a big box of records and made a show up for three hours. You just talked at stuff. And uh, they took me out after it and, and they tried to fire us and said, you can't just go on there and, and just do that and say, you know, uh, uh, your Lives Capital Radio, you've got sores on your faces, we're chasing you up trees, new sheriff in town, ring him... <laughs> I thought that's what you did. I thought, well, you know, okay, you, you, you have to work, not appear. Anyway, and they got a tiny a little blip in their uh, listening figures. I thought, ooh. And they left it alone, and that then became the style. I mean, it's not quite as, you know, in your face as now, but... And people, God love BBC Five Live, they let me get there just before it starts, and they know it's a, it works, And but it doesn't fit in with anything they do. And should they, as I've said before, next week decide we don't want that show anymore, sausage sandwich game and all, we don't want it anymore, as they're totally entitled to do, if they want to say, let's look forward to the Premier League fixtures, as they're totally entitled to do, I'm not in radio at all. At all. Uh, and... Even though, yes, you know, I'm 60 this year and I have no ambitions in that direction anymore. It would have been different a couple of years ago. I, I, I find it a bit odd. I do find it a bit odd that you can be, you know, dear old Ian Lee who's just come out of the jungle, we refer to say, you know, I see my subjects everywhere, you know. I see them. <laughs> but that's all right because they don't quite have, I don't think they're the same style as myself. But I, I do not get offered a single radio job. Radio 2 and me have danced around a few times. I don't like them. They don't like me. They ask too many questions when you go and what you're going to play, what you're going to say. And I said, just fine, you know, leave me alone. Did a, a thing about musicals for him a couple of Christmases ago, um, three or four Christmases ago now, and Elaine Page went off. And I went in and just, because I love musicals, and I started playing all the songs and doing, you know, what's happened to you in the theatre, uh, ever seen a, you know, a diva in real life, and what's come over the footlights at you, or whatever it was, ever passed out during a musical. And, and then the switchboard was going like this, but before, and they did great. Uh, but before it started, all they want to know is what you're going to say, what you're going to do. What, all these producers around me, I said, I've been doing this a long time, you know. But they, they'd be like, yeah, you know, it's not us, it's upstairs. No, it ain't, it's you. Mm. Because, you know, if you played those magnificent men in their flying machines and there'd just been an air crash, you see, 
How, honestly, how dare you? How dare you? Th- you've got a very good example in the book of the quality of thinking that very often goes on at management. Well, we know, and, and it's, it's almost wearying, I think, for people else to talk about it. It was the Beatles anniversary, Oh, that, oh bless you. And that, 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 I know, and this was when I thought, I'm not going to stay at this station, am I? Uh, I used to do the dead spot, the, literally the doldrum spot, three to five in the afternoon. Because uh, I'd been doing other spots and they asked us back, and I knew that was nowhere between Robert Elms and Eddie Nestor, and they're, 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 nothing was going on there. And it, but the th- problem was people used to tune in with me and tune out again with face facts, Eddie. Uh, but they, <laughs> <laughs> but they, but they, uh, 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 which is not great for a radio station. I know all that, but I knew when this new pipsqueak joined. And uh, I was waiting to go on. Me and Amy and Bailey was all talking in one of the little rooms, and they came in. Hello, I'm. I thought, okay, okay. No, I wasn't. I've never been asked out. As far as I'm concerned, we're all you know conspirators on the same racket. So I said, Oh, how are you doing? Right. Uh, listen, um, I don't even know. Next week, yeah. I thought, Oh no, she's giving me some advice. So, oh, uh, is 50 years since the Beatles loved me do? And I said, Right. Oh, yeah, I do know that actually. Yes, I do. I do. Uh, so you know, we're wondering if you could do. I said, Well, yeah. Obviously, I said, You know. You know, my show, I'll go on there and say, yeah, it's 50 years since uh, Love Me Do. What's your favourite Zappa track? I said, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. And just uh, straight, I said, well I, well, I won't do that. I said, but I'll do it in my own way. You know, something. Yeah, only, you know, everyone's joining in. Phrase I've always... So she said, uh, everyone's joining. And we're wondering, you know, maybe you could do, you know, uh, what's your favourite Beatles track? Oh, God. Honestly. <laughs> and I thought, oh... I said, well, you know, well, I didn't want to throw it back. And I said, but, you know, we'll be saying, I'll do something like that. I said, probably a little different from that. And she looked at me as if they thought, oh, right. Okay, so you're not going to do that. I mean, you, and there was a frost then. It was about, about a month later that they aimed us out the door because it, it's odd that they don't, people who run radio don't un- actually understand radio. And I never thought I would ever quote Queen, uh, a group who's had a big influence on my career, but I don't like them. And uh, they have. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, radio, someone still loves you. But and I would love to do it. I'd genuinely love to do it. But literally, nobody asked me to do any radio at all. And yet, they will garland me. Uh, and and, and say, it's a smart thing to say. We, it, it's like in, um, uh, what's the film? Uh, uh, um, Sam was the Coen Brothers film. Uh, the... Uh, Barton Fink, thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> uh, Barton Fink. In Barton Fink, when they asked Barton Fink out to the West Coast and uh, they offer him a Wallace Beery wrestling film to write, and he's the greatest playwright on <laughs> And he looks at him and says, right, because, uh, you know what, I don't know a lot about that world. And they look at him and they say, listen, you, this is Hollywood. We could have asked anyone to come out here and write a Barton Fink-style script, but we asked you, and he is Barton Fink. And he's like, right, so don't mess around with us. We could have asked anyone, but we've asked you. We're giving you first dibs on it. And lots of people in radio want a Danny Baker type show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And lots of people, and they, they have a go, but it ain't quite as simple as that. And I will, you know, in, you know, God, let it be 30 more years. I will shuffle off this mortal call, and I know those rat bags and weasels and waxworks and gargoyles <laughs> will absolutely give me encomiums up the wazoo. Oh, he's brilliant, really. But even though they will not give me radio shows right, to do. Right, right. Number. Number two. Number two. Oh, right. Yeah, OK. So it's a minor story um, uh, in prospect. Is, we're looking at a picture of Damon Hill, the racing driver. Damon Hill. Um, uh, this, again, my garrulousness, which uh, I, I, I attempt to employ in the entertainment uh, sometimes 
you know, uh, sometimes it's good to perhaps rein it in. Uh, uh, I went on Concord. Uh, there's a whole story about uh, in, the, in the book about the wonderful and never-to-be-repeated experience of Tier 5 Friday. Whether you like the show or not, the actual experience of writing it was unbelievably giddy and a massive budget. And we were around Chris's house one day, and John Cleese, I used to write it on the... Wednesday, uh, rewrite it on the Thursday, and then Chris would rewrite again Friday morning. But me and him, it wasn't. A, it, it was one of the great things that, that's lost in uh, entertainment now. Whereas it's not a democracy. It was an abs. You know, it, it, what Chris and I said went. That was it, and that's why he got this reputation of being a monster. But no, that's how it works. We give the information out, and everyone would do it. It wasn't. You know, let's run it through different departments. And we were sitting, and John Cleese was our guest, and that week. And so we would sit at Chris's house on the Tuesday and tangentially refer to the show. And he'd say to Susie, who was the book, Susie, who's on? We've got John Cleese. He's, he's flying in from New York and he's doing the show properly. OK, uh, well, OK, that's fine. So I've got some ideas about John Cleese. Uh, not really. We would think about it when the time comes. Anyway, so he said, well, when's he getting in? She said, well, he's getting in on Thursday, but Chris, he, he wants to see a script tomorrow. So we said, well, that ain't going to happen, is it? I, we're not going to, we're going to go off and drink heavily now. We're not going to, honestly. But he, and Susie's very responsible. He said, no, he, he's, he's just, I said, well, it's all, it'll be fine. Tell him it's fine. We don't write the show like that. You know, it was very disciplined here by Friday. People think it was a, it wasn't. In our own way, we knew exactly what we were doing. And you can't have a show with four live bands, three guests, four ad breaks to hit, 200 people in, you know, 90 crew. You can't do that. So it was written, but not in a way. Anyway, John Cleese's people, come out and said, well, unless he's got the script by tomorrow, uh, we're not, he's pulling out of the show. And Cleese at the time was just doing Fish Called Wanda. It was a big thing, but he's John Cleese. So Chris said, I know what we'll do. Let's go to New York now and, t- <laughs> right, and we'll film it and say, we haven't got a script. Uh, hello, I'm Chris Evans. This is Danny who writes the show. We haven't got a script. And we'll film it and see what he does. And we, <laughs> so I said, I said, well, I rang. I said, when? I said, when? Um, Get my, I'm going to New York on Wednesday, right? This is a Tuesday afternoon. She went, all right, what do you want? I said, well, there's a bloke coming round, giving me passport. I'm going, me and Chris are going to New York. So we did, um, and we went on Concord, right? <laughs> yeah, it was early in the morning. We went, we, there was a Concord about one o'clock, and it got us in, anyway, way we went, over to New York, and... Uh, 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 when we got over in Manhattan two and a half hours later, which is still earlier than when we left, from the first people we see uh, as we're walking down uh, Spring Street, is, it, it was uh, Damon Hill. And so Chris loves motors. I don't know about motors. It was Damon Hill. Mo- Wendy's brother uh, knows him a bit. They lived out. So anyway, so I said, I've got an in here. So across the road, he knows Chris, of course. I said, Damon, you know Rod, don't you? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, what were you guys doing in town? He was doing the David Letterman show that night. What are you guys doing? I said, oh, we'll come over here. We're doing, you know, uh, going to go and see John Cleese, which, again, in the book, you find out we never actually caught up with him. Uh, so, I know, because Chris is like, uh, I said, should we go and do it now, Chris? I mean, well, hang on, hang on. <laughs> um, um, we don't have to do it straight away. We, and you'll find out it got away. And anyway, I hurt me leg and we went... Anyway, we didn't have caught up. So, Damon Hill, and, uh, and I said, we've just got... He said, you just got in. I said, just got in. I said, we come on Concord. You've been on Concord? No, I've never been on Concord. You've never been on Concord? No, he said... So, I talked to Damon about it. I said, what it is? I said, you sit there. It's like a smarty tube. And <laughs> it is. It was like a little smarty tube, Concord. I said, and you sit there and... 
I said, you go. I said, but you can really feel it. You can really actually, not like a plane. I said, you can really feel as it goes, and there's a meat thing in front of you until you hit, like this, and it pushes you back in your seat. And I think it was Susie who was with us, and that me. He said, Dan, you're telling Damon Hill what it's like to accelerate. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know, uh, I was. It really pushes you back in the seat, and the G And dear old Damon was just going, okay. Okay. <laughs> I know. And so that's one time you should, uh, perhaps should have built it up. But that all comes under the umbrella of what an extraordinary uh, uh, gig TFI was to do, whether it was, you know, Zeppelin Planet or Madonna, and any, everyone came, came through them grubby little studios over in Hammersmith. Give us another number. Uh, oh, look at the numbers here. Where have I gone? I haven't got any, this line much. The number 17. Number 17. Oh, this okay. is uh, you're looking at this is a again. This is a it's a major joint of a fire. There's a huge. It looks like the cover of uh, Burning by the it way. It does, doesn't it? It looks like it's a massive. Peter uh, Tosh ought to be the other end of that. Doobie, <laughs> a massive doobie on the screen. A massive. And here's the thing. There's that show called What I Lie to You. Uh, that originally Angus did and now, of course, Rob Brydon does, uh, which is people, they've asked me to be on it a couple of times and I've done it, and I've got plenty of stories, obviously, and they say, give us something that people might not believe about you. And I've said, well, I was in Led Zeppelin for 35 minutes. This is true. (laughs) I was one of the original uh, faces in the London dungeon. This is true. Um, uh, And on, 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 on. There's plenty to do. You know, I've written the princes and stood up the future king of England and all this. Okay, okay. And then I said, "Um, uh, anything else? I thought, anything else? (laughs) I said, uh, uh, I said, one thing people never believe about me, I said, I've never smoked dope. Well, the 12-year-old BBC researcher could hear the phone drop. <laughs> what do you mean, you know? I said, I haven't, I've never, it's never, uh, you, know, uh, you know, God love you. I said, I know it's omnipresent now. I said, but uh, when I was uh, on the estate, it wasn't a lot, of, I didn't know anyone who smoked dope. I didn't. I wanted to. I thought, oh, yeah, that's sophisticated. But I had no idea what particular cellar you went to and pulled up your collar and your hat down and went down and asked for some, you know, two ounces of hashish. There just wasn't part of the culture. And it's unbelievable now when they put, you know, dope through your door with the pizza menus that the, 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 <laughs> but we I never had I'd never smoked dope um, I, didn't, I took a lot of speed when I was a punk rocker you can imagine me on speed there you go <laughs> <laughs> but I never never no cocaine and and, and, and dope but never did and they could not believe that he didn't use it on the show they used one of their stories um, anyway so the only other person uh, I I uh, know who equally says nobody believes me is former editor of the enemy Danny Kelly Danny Kelly uh, uh, a lot of people say are you and Danny going to do any more shows uh, I'd love to work with Danny again but I, 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 I'll tell everyone here Danny lives approximately uh, uh, a minute and a half from where we're broadcasting is he here tonight no, no he's not <laughs> Danny, I'll try and come down. He lives 90 <laughs> seconds away. We could be working together tonight, but no. no. He's indoors watching some repeat of the cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, 90 seconds away. He's true. Here. No, he isn't. Uh, so, Danny's never smoked dope either. So, um, Danny's a great... Uh, Which is even enough. more amazing Danny's... Well, Dennis you say Cash. that, but I was there during the era of Charles Sean Murray and, and Penny Real and all these old NME heads who were just... You know, but Danny spends his entire life listening to heavy dub records. Dub records, he was editor of NME, editor Q and all this. So you think, well, just there's no big deal. I don't put any store by this, but it just never has happened. It, I don't... I don't... I wouldn't... Anyway, so we, we used to talk about this, me and Danny, and then he rang up one time, and Danny never says 
Hi, Dan. How you doing? Never does that. Dan is one that he's, you pick up the phone. You always know him. Dan. He goes, listen, we're going to Holland. <laughs> Hello, Dan. Listen, you know why we're going to Holland? So I say, no, I'll tell you why we're going to Holland. Because there's a record fair, and I'm reading it now in the Record Collector magazine. It says the stalls are the size of two and a half football pitches. What do you say to that? I said, well, when? Doesn't matter when, are you coming with me? Because otherwise... All right, he said, and you know what else we're going to do? I said, what? He said, we're going to get stoned. <laughs> I said... Yeah, all right. He said, no, we are. Listen to me. I'm being absolute... Um, we always got this thing, Delhi Deli Serio. We always... I'm Delhi Serio about this. <laughs> listen to me, Danny. Listen, listen. And he's absolutely serious. We are going to get stoned, because what we can do, we'll go to the record fair, we'll come back from the record fair, and we're going to find one of these bars, and we're going to get absolutely stoned. So I said, right. And you know what we're going to do next? This is absolutely... Because we'll discuss this. Then, once we've been stoned, listen to me, because I'm serious. All right. We're going to take a boat on the Norfolk Broads and take LSD. <laughs> All right, Dan. I'm not joking. I said, I know you're not joking, Dan. <laughs> all right. So we did. We, we, I said, when I'm going to Holland to get stoned. Oh, bleeding. So, all right. So why we, so we, this rebel fair was in Utrecht. So, uh, and there's another story about it. me and Danny actually went to a football match in Holland and ended up in the wrong country. But there you go. Uh, so uh, we went there and we went to this record fair. And sure enough, he was a bit disappointed. It was about 1.8 football pitches at best anyway <laughs> so he's buying as you know all this hardcore dub and, and techno and jazz albums and I buy, I buy rock albums from the 70s so we, anyway we bought loads of stuff and we came back put it all back in the way he said right here we go uh, let's do you know let, let's do this and the only time in our lives he ever said that so we went down to reception and we walked out in the street and we've both been to Amsterdam before a few times but we couldn't quite remember where they all were doesn't matter but the first one we come to we'll go in <laughs> Well, we must have been walking for about an hour. <laughs> anywhere. So we saw this one place that had a, 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 you know, had a neon in the window. Smoke, smoke, a little a, a marijuana thing in neon next to it and all of this. What do you think about that one? So I said, uh, that looks like the place, is it? And it had, yes, we sell marijuana in the window. Actually, if you ask one of them, I said, I think he's got... So, we, no, that's the first... We'll find another one. We carried on walking, walking, and eventually came round, and he said, look, that one there. I said, Dan, that's the same place, but the neon's gone out. It's, we, we, we went in there. Now, the last time we went to Amsterdam, all the uh, dope joints were kind of funky, uh, sofas like this, and pot plants, puns intended, all just a lovely kind of... Because I'd been there with bands, and I'd been there with me and doing the blockheads, for example, they got absolutely tongue, but I have no idea how to smoke dope, and they had no interest for it. So, anyway... Uh, in we went, and we, uh, but as soon as we went in, it was stainless steel and glass, and the music was like this. And we looked at each other and we said, "This, this can't be right. This can't be right." So we we left there, uh, walked around, couldn't find anywhere else. Came back to this place. Let's go up to the counter and just just get stoned. Up we went to the counter. Right, we'd like to get stoned, please. Right. <laughs> You sell marijuana? Yes. So I said, uh, yes. And he's quite busy, uh, and the music wasn't quite as insistent as it was. So Danny said, uh, yes, well, um, how do you do this? Because we don't know. And they gave us some menus, they, and the bloke walked away. And I said, Dan, what do you reckon? He went, well, we, you know, the names we didn't know. And I, uh, so, um, I said, well, go with the second one. That's not going to be... OK, excuse me. So he came back. I said, we'll have the second one, uh, out, um, uh, a half ounce or an ounce, whatever. But he said to me, uh, what do you reckon, Dan? Uh, 
I don't know, how, what would you suggest? You know, sort of, uh, I don't know. So we said, right, we'll have some of that then. So he brought us it back and floating. Right, here we go. Stand back, everyone. <laughs> we're we're going to get stoned. And we found a little booth and we sat in this booth. He went, now, what do you do? So I said, don't ask me. <laughs> he said, what do you do? I said, well, you, 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 um, you get cigarette papers, don't you? You make a thing. Have you got any cigarette papers? I said, I haven't got any cigarette papers. Right, back up, we went to the couch. Excuse me. Uh, Cigarette papers, please. And the fellow, and he's busy in there. And the fellow went, uh, which ones? And there was a cabinet behind me, about 400 in. Um, what would you suggest? He said, I, 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 I said, well, th- those, mate, them there. And the fellow went and he paid him. He came back and he went, well, you make it. And I said, I don't know how to make it. Well, I don't. <laughs> so we got there and, and, and we were having a go and it's just ridiculous. I said, it has to be like, I'm trying to think of with nail and I, that rectangle, just ridiculous. Anyway, he said, now what? So I said, well, because mine was all right. I said, it's all coming apart. He said, um, well, give us the marijuana. So we said, and, and we poured, I said, but you, you cut it with um, cigarette, uh, with, with, uh, with tobacco. He said, have you got any tobacco? I said, I ain't got any tobacco. <laughs> Back, excuse me. So I said, what? And, what? I said, um, would like some uh, cigarettes. Which ones? Well, Danny, I said, well, Marlborough. Pack of Marlborough, please. So I gave us the Marlborough back when we went and sat down. Right, here we go. Stand back, everyone. Here we go. And we broke this cigarette. How much do you put? I said, Dan, I don't know. I've never done it. So we broke up a few cigarettes, and there it was. And we tried to wrap these papers around it. It was ab- absolutely ludicrous. It kept busting open. Danny, uh, Look, you're not taking this seriously. I said, Dan, I ain't, I'm not doing it. I don't, I'm so, and eventually we made this terrible limp blimp of a thing and like this. Right, right, here we go. Um, you twist it off at the end, right. You got any matches? I said, I ain't got any matches. <laughs> Back up we went. Excuse me. Uh, and Danny, I knew it. Danny went, excuse me, I'll give you 100 euros if you make a joke. <laughs> No, he gave us the matches. We went and sat down again. We got this one fucking stuff limb blimp. Right, Danny, okay, here we go. So I and, and got the match alight. He said, you go first. And I lit it, and the thing which should fizzle at the end, I don't know, but it just exploded like the cover of Led Zeppelin 1. It went boom! And it was all coming down the edge, and, oh, and we stepped there. And, I, and we're killing ourselves laughing. Dan! I said, I've got to stamp it out. It was coming. He was like, well, what, what do we do? I said, I don't know what we did wrong. So we built another one. And we did that, and we laid that out like this. And he then saw a woman passing by, because people were looking at us. And he said, would you come and do this? And she said, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll come and do it for you. And this woman sat with her, God love her. And within, like, 20 seconds, we there you go. Do you want one as well? And I said, oh, we're, we're going to share this one. Here we go, everyone, stand back. So we... <laughs> We lit this, and I went first, and I lit it, and I don't, don't smoke or anything, so I lit this thing, there we go. And I went... <coughs> <coughs> oh, God. <coughs> so that was, I said, Dan, oh, I said, oh, give it to me. So he got it, and he took a puff on it, and a piece of smoke went under his glasses and into his eye, and he's gone like this. And he looked at me, killing, coughing, having a coughing fit, and the smoke coming, and, he, and we both went into the worst giggles we've ever had in our life. And I said, Dan, this is a washer. And people must have been thinking, like in Harry Met Sally, I'll have what they're smoking. Because we were gone. We were gone. And we stood up with this paraphernalia and dope all over the table. And we said, we stood up, we said, gentlemen, it's all yours. (laughs) And we walked out of there and went for a Chinese meal. And and we did. Thank you. And... 
I swear, we sat in the Chinese restaurant and we ordered, still laughing about it, and I let it die and I said, oh, uh, what do you want to go on the Norfolk Broads and take LSD, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> it was an absolute fiasco. I'm going I'm I'm to choose the next picture. Because uh, I, it, the, just a generic picture of a doctor. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, a doctor doesn't look a thousand times dissimilar to the doctor who treated me. Right. Because uh, obviously, I, the that book, plays a major I've part never, I've no, I'm no good. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at writing a, a, a funny story. I'm pretty good at writing um, dialogue. I'm no good with what we might call, you know, uh, serious writing. But I knew you couldn't weasel out and make... I, I intended to write a funny book about having cancer. Uh, I thought, that, that's something, and if anyone do it, I can do it. Uh, and Because we don't, we don't talk about anything in our house, which is exactly the way to be. Things always work out. <laughs> and, uh, no, it is. Uh, but uh, uh, when uh, I, I got it, because um, uh, I, this lump come up in my neck in about 2008... And, uh, but a lump come up in my neck. You think, well, that's all right. Lumps come up in necks, don't they? I grew up in an era when old boys used to go down the street with goiters out to here. <laughs> and more, more, more often than not, a big old clubfoot shoe as well. <laughs> that's all right. This happens. You know, uh, uh, and then you prick them like a balloon. They go down. I didn't know what. But this thing grew up until people started saying, what's that in your neck? And I've never been a warrior. I just ain't. Uh, until too many people said it. And um, when said, go and have it seen to. But it didn't occur to me for a second it would be anything bad. And sure enough, it wasn't. I went to see him, they prodded it around, they said, no, it's your thyroid has blown up. Uh, you know, what happens is you'll have to come in, you have an operation, you'll have to take three or four days. And I said, I, I can't take three or four days, I'll do a daily radio show. You know, them's were the days. And I said, uh, I, I can't do Anyway, they said, we're going to have to do it. So then I went and they did it and they took away the thyroid. And your thyroid's like a bow tie. Uh, and they explained that. So we take away half of it, uh, the other half will leave you fine with that. Often they blow up again on the other side. If it does that, you're going to have to be on tablets for the, what the thyroid does for the rest of your life. Okay. But so watch the other side. So I did that. It was all good. Three or four days at work. They did a great job. And about two years later, up, up stuff comes here. This old bald head starts happening over here. Oh, oh no. When am I, you know, I'm shaving. I'm thinking, when am I going to take? When am I going to take three or four days at work again? Let it go and go and go until again people are saying, "You were saying your neck." I said, "Oh, me thyroid." Uh, you know, I did. Oh, right. So anyway, it got. So I had to go and see him, and I went to see old Dr. D'Souza, and I said, Dr. D'Souza said, look, look. He said, what? I said, do you remember? He said, he said yeah, I remember. He said, but that's, that doesn't look like your thyroid. I said, yes, it is. Do you remember you told me? Watch it on that side. And he said, yeah, but that, okay. He said, do me a favor. Go down, picked up a phone. Go downstairs and let them, you can't do it. He said, no, they'll, they'll do some tests. And they did these tests. were revolting. You had to put your head over like a a uh, 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 pillow bolster so your neck sticking right out and in golden needles and all this and bang and, uh, and then I stood up I said so when and the woman said you okay with all this <laughs> like an idiot I said yeah absolutely yeah 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 she went okay fine I went and saw him he said well we'll look at those and uh, we'll get so home I went uh, went back indoors and uh, uh, told when I said they said you might not be the fire I don't know what it is this time and the phone rang and it was the hospital again and they said uh it was the secretary of my doctor. He said, hello, Mr. Baker. I said, yep. And he said, is this Dr. D'Souza's secretary? I said, okay. She went, you came here some, for some tests? I said, yeah, about an hour and a half ago. She went, yes. Um, could you come back? I said, when? She went, uh, now. I said, oh. And she went, uh, could you bring someone with you? And you think, oh, oh. And even I thought, oh, okay. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I can hear Wendy saying, who is it? Who is it? I said, okay. I'll be right back. And I put the phone on the windmill. Who is it? And that's how the book starts. 
and you think, okay. And then began what I intended to write as funny. I don't think I've written it as maudlin, certainly didn't write it as, but this extraordinary, relentless process of having, because when they told me it was head and neck cancer, you think, well, cancer of the head? Well, that, that's that, you know, that's that. You know, don't get any box sets then, because you um, but, <laughs> Yeah, honestly, and it, it, it is the most grueling, uh, appalling, humiliating, degrading. Uh, and I don't, you know, that's not my nature at all. But it just is. And so when I wrote in the, it's all in there, uh, which Wendy had never heard. We never, but I lost the power even to blink my eyes for a period. I lost the power to acknowledge people coming in the room. And it's a long eight months, and then. And then it changes, but it, you, it, apart from bone marrow, apparently it's the worst one to have. But equally, in the back of your mind, even in the absolute depths, and there are such depths, you think, as you think, this is this is, and it's a horrible thing to say. But you think, oh, this is quite a good story. It's a terrible thing. Certain thing. No, you do. As a writer, you do, because you realise that. And I know one day when you know. I was, they put a hole in your, your, your gut because you can't use your, anything above here and you have to feed through a tube that's in you and it's revolting and disgusting and water has to go in there and morphine eventually because it's so, you know, you, the first time you reach for the morphine and have to pump it into yourself and you keep the bathroom door shut, you know, because still propriety is everything and, and everyone else feels hopeless and helpless. Uh, but that kind of thing, you're documenting and there's no yeah. getting away from it, you did. And so uh, the writing that's in there about this is not light. And it is, um, at, one yeah, point, the, at one point I do say, reader, I think we've had enough of this. Cause it is so <laughs> There's awful. one bit where you, I think you go for your first chemo and you go loaded up with magazines and books and you yeah. know, things I to mean, pass every, your time. Everyone thinks, I know, I'm sure people in this room have been, but there's different types of yeah. uh, cancer, yeah. obviously, <clears throat> and extraordinarily different. And I thought chemotherapy was a thing, but chemotherapy is as vague a term as surgery. It's just it's everything specific to you. And people have been good enough, uh, you know, friends sending us uh, uh, actual uh, players, uh, you know, like um, iPod players that play, yeah. you know, people to play films. Anyway, they sent us all these, you know, here's films and magazines. Because I couldn't have it at home. I had to go in to, to have the chemo. And, uh, but your appetite leaves you. You've got no, ab- you've got absolutely no interest in it. Not in a moribund way. You don't sit there thinking, oh, why me? But there's this disconnect with the world, and like I went home at Christmas, uh, and you are not there. You're just not, uh, the thing with the chemo I had, your feet don't touch the floor quite. You try and, you, you, it's like, I think I wrote in it, it's like being someone trying to follow a joke being told in a, in a foreign language. When someone's talking to you, you do the best, you, okay, but you're actually not there. And the worst thing is the chemo was three months and then the radiotherapy started, which is very much chemo's ugly, you know, brutal cousin, because they said you're going to have to be a brave old soldier, and you get through the chemo, even though you come home at Christmas, and you just don't know who you are, where you are, and the disconnect is enormous. It's like, uh, like uh, the worst hangover with the worst jet lag combined, continually. And then when the radiotherapy started, you go to the brink of death, and that's what they do. And you've got to keep in your mind, this is not the cancer, this is the cure, and it takes you within centimetres of dying. You do think... If I close my eyes, this is how it happens. This is how it happens. You cannot believe how awful and degrading and so weak every day you get locked into a machine, your head bolted down, and all you hear is this, like a fax machine. Where this mach- and everyone goes out the room, literally puts on a lead vest and watches you. 
and says, you know, you're going to be every day 40 minutes, 40 minutes, 40 minutes until you, 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 you're nothing but skin and bone and being taken. I remember the first time I went, I mean, when sat in the thing and I was pretty weak, but there was a fella sitting opposite me. He was coughing to the very edge of his reason and his wife had his arms around and he was coughing and coughing and kept being sick and we kept looking at him and, I, and we both didn't want to say, I think that's where we're going. And I remember looking at him and thinking, oh, my God. And this poor wretch, he just kept going, oh, God. Oh, God. And you think, oh, mate, oh, mate. But you are, when you come in, I knew that that's, that's where you're going. Mm. That is where you're going. But that's the cure, not the actual thing. Although it can kill you. Daddy said, look, it's a tremendous success rate of this. So when you're writing that, obviously, and as I said, there's plenty of detail like that in it, uh, and given my nature, I tried to get well too quick and collapsed in Piccadilly on my way to an award ceremony. Uh, and honestly, days after I should have been, you know, in bed. Uh, uh, but I, I, the actual thing of the cancer, and that's why I've never gone along to any of the things that say, would you come and talk about it? Would you come and uh, tell other people? I said, no, because all I can tell those people is it's going to be so much worse than you can possibly imagine. Not every cancer's like that. The one I had was, and I said, it's going to be so much worse than you can possibly imagine. And nobody wants to hear that. It's not helpful. But I would not be able to tell them anything else. It is just the, the most humiliatingly degrading, awful. One day I woke up and I, and I looked, I had a T-shirt on in bed. and You could barely move your head. And I looked down and I thought I'd cut me throat. They'd warned us about this. They tell you every stage of it. But for some reason, and the blood was all over my T-shirt. And I can't, I could hardly, and I, I got out of bed and I went into the bathroom. And you look at yourself in the mirror like this. And the blood was, and my neck had started to melt. And I mean that, it was melting. And I looked and the skin was coming away. And, it was, and so, you know, I couldn't, I can't talk. And I had to wait for something to come upstairs. And they called the district nurse and who calls the hospital and they said, we did say, you know, it does jellyfy and fall away that after a while the radiation is so... They said, but the only thing is you can't put any galls on it, tell them not to put... You can't put anything on it because it will stick to it. And it come, and there's days and days of this thing and you just think, um, you can't survive this. But you do, and the next thing you know, like six months later... Uh, you, you know, you've got you're, you're Danny Kelly's on the phone saying, so you didn't die then. <laughs> Danny, Danny, wrote, Danny wrote a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing for The Guardian about when it was broke, I had cancer, about this wonderful encomium. A tremendous, it's a while, brought a blush, a whole page of this, you know, just this wonderful stuff Danny wrote about us. And, I, you know, and, and, and Wendy brought it in, and I was ill, and I read it, and I said, oh, I thought... I bet he was saving this for the obituary. <laughs> and I've, I've now turned the corner. He thought, why don't you run that anyway? I'll, I'll change the tense. I'll change a few of the tenses. <laughs> and I saw him, I said, did you? Well, I might have done. I might have done. <laughs> you forget, I've been ill too. And, and, and all he, he changed is, in, he changed was back into is. And, and he got 750 quid out the Guardian for it. <laughs> Anyway, well, they, they, there's, it is, it's a wonderful book, and uh, I, I do. I was particularly moved by the the bit where the doctors finally say, after you know, many months of going back, they say, "We don't need to see you anymore." And you, oh, yeah. Yeah, and you say, here. "You say thank you." Yeah, just read that. Um, I'll tell you why I'm doing this because, of course, in, in, in the absolute. Uh, uh, every chapter, and people will know, are, are kind of obscure uh, LP tracks. Uh, hang on. Yeah, the, uh, and I know, here's the thing, and this is where I lose all the sympathy to the audience, because in the writing of it, as I said, Wendy never knew, and quite rightly none of us have ever discussed it, 
uh, even when they've read it since. Uh, but uh, when you're writing it, and the, the one gift I do have is being out there, you know what it's like as a writer, when you can put down exactly what you meant to say, and I go on an orgy of self-congratulation and walk around the house, and when says, you've written something particularly good, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. Do you want to hear it? No. no I... <laughs> anyway, but this was right at the end, and the only reason I want to say it is because I, I can say it, but I wouldn't paraphrase this. Um, and Dr. Simo and, and, and uh, Dr. Guerra Rabano, uh, she's uh, Spanish, she's the head of oncology over there, and Dr. Simo is the other person. I was under those two all of this time, and they had to put up with all of my, you know, the, 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 the terrible, you know, desecration, and I kept saying, so, it can't be right, because I can't talk, I mean, imagine, I couldn't talk for five months. Uh, it can't be right, and, and you ever, they tell you your whole throat and mouth is going to turn into one huge blister, and you think... But it all, anyway, but they see you through it, and these geniuses over at Guy's Hospital on the NHS, they see you through it. And this was when the last time I went to them, because then you have to go back, you go back every six weeks, then every uh, uh, three months, then every six months, then every year, and then it's two years, and then one day it arrives, you know, and you, you're fit in wind and shank. But socially, you know, and we used to have a great relationship. So I said, um, for the next five years, I remained under the care of Mr. Simo and Dr. Guerra Rabano as an outpatient. The way it works is that you have hospital appointments every six weeks, then every three months, uh, then biannually, and then one day you're sitting across the desk from them, and after a conversation that has been 20% medical and 80% catch-up chit-chat, they say, well, that's it. We don't need to see you again. Take care. If you've got any worries, come back. But you should be fine. Goodbye and good luck. And it's over. The cutting, the coughing, the needles, the tubes, the pain, the sickness, the indignity, the separation, the worry, the dread, the loneliness, all ended. The most devastating period imaginable is finished. You are well. You are strong and fit and without symptom. You had cancer, now you don't have it. You don't have cancer. You don't have to come back here anymore. You didn't die. It didn't win. And now the people who did that for you are holding out their hand to shake, smiling at the enormity of the moment reflected on your face. They will not be going anywhere, of course. They are the ones still looking fraught and frazzled as mid-shift in one of the busiest hospitals in the world. They now want to wave you off and get back to dealing with the long line of poor wretches outside who are all at varying stages of the disgusting, miraculous process they dispense. What on earth do you say to such extraordinary people at a time like that? Well, you try to come up with a speech, but in the end, you just say thank you. Then you say thank you again until you realise you're saying it over and over and you just can't stop. Then you stand up dazed and walk the few paces to the door of that small, familiar, scruffy surgery and turning to them once again, you say it a few more times, quite unable to leave. And it's then they perform one final service for you. They hand you some tissues. And that was the... Uh... And that was the end of that. But against that, against the uh, you know wonderful, powerful, emotional pull of that, uh, you equally as a as a writer, you put and they hand you some tissues. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh that's good. That's good. That is. Good. And so uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 part uh, memory, but a lot of professionalism in there. That's the, you know, Ellen. Ladies and gentlemen, Danny Baker. Thank you very much, everybody. Bless you.
This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Listen to this ACAST show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.